0: Christchurch, New Malden, 9th of February 2020, 6.30 service. Ruth Henson speaking in the series, Titles for Jesus, Son of Man. So, as we've heard, we're continuing our series entitled, Titles for Jesus. Titles are interesting things, aren't they? Some people are very particular about being addressed by their correct title, whereas others aren't bothered at all. I remember sending a congratulations on your ordination card to a friend and feeling excited to write Reverend on the envelope for the first time, only to be thanked for the card but told there was no need to bother writing Reverend another time as he wasn't fussed about using the title. And we'll all know from recent news stories that Harry and Meghan have decided they are happy to sacrifice their HRH titles in order to live the life they feel more comfortable with. But mix up Ms, Miss or Mrs and some people will take great umbrage. (laughs) Obviously, some titles come with a certain expectation. I remember when I was making an inquiry about afternoon tea at Fortnum & Mason for my parents' golden wedding anniversary, the drop-down menu for title on the inquiry form was a lot longer than the usual list (laughs) containing Sir, Lady, Lord, Dame, etc. It left you in no doubt the poshness of the establishment. And the status that comes with certain titles can lead us to want to cling onto them i know that when restructuring at my school meant that my job title changed from head of something to coordinator of something it did make me worry about what people would think and the questions that might be asked it's certainly true that some titles can reveal a significant amount about a person because they can only be used by people who have earned the right in some way, such as the great levels they have studied to if they are a doctor of medicine or of the PhD variety, or a professor, or the rank they have attained within their profession, such as Colonel or Sergeant. Some titles, however, are ones which are ascribed based purely on other people's opinions, such as National Treasure, unsung hero living legend etc but these two can reveal a great deal about the person in question and the esteem they are held in but it's also interesting to consider the way we choose to introduce ourselves the title or name we want others to think of us by one of my favorite tv programs starts its new series tonight on itv endeavor For those of you who haven't watched it, you're missing out, Uh, it's the prequel to Inspector Morse, which was an iconic police drama series based on the novels of Colin Dexter. But I can never help but be struck by how ironic it is that the prequel series is entitled Endeavour. In the original novels and TV series, the Inspector would never reveal his first name, wishing only to be addressed as Morse. Eventually, Morse, who was a huge fan of cryptic crosswords, gave a clue to his elusive name. My whole life's effort has revolved around Eve. Around Eve is an anagram of endeavour, and this was revealed to be Morse's secret first name, for which he had been bullied at school. He definitely wouldn't be happy at ITV's choice of title for the prequel series. That was rather a lot of introductory chat about titles in general but i hope you'll see the relevance as we start to dig deeper with regard to the title for jesus we're considering this evening son of man the title we looked at last week with the help of alex was christ or messiah and we heard that christ is used over 400 times in the new testament and messiah more than 70 times but Jesus hardly ever chooses to use those titles about himself. No, Jesus' favourite name for himself was the title we're studying this evening, Son of Man. It is found more than 80 times in the New Testament, and on almost every occasion, Jesus is using it to refer to himself. In fact, he often exchanges it for the pronoun I, speaking of himself in the third person. For example, in Matthew 8, verse 20, where he says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lie his head. Or in Matthew 9, verse 6, but I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralysed man, get up, take your mat and go home. Not only do we have almost no occurrences in the New Testament of anyone other than Jesus calling him by this title, there is also no evidence that use of this title was picked up on by the early church. Therefore, it would seem to be out of the question that the Gospel writers might have decided upon this title for Jesus, thinking it added something to their accounts. No, it rather appears to have been Jesus' own unique way of describing himself. And if Jesus chose to use it over Christ, Messiah, or any of the other titles ascribed to him, there must have been a good reason. Let's start by discovering the origins of the phrase Son of Man. In the Old Testament, it is found most frequently in the book of Ezekiel, God calls the prophet Son of Man ninety-three times, but in this context he was using it to refer to Ezekiel as a human being, an ordinary man. In fact, it would seem as though Son of Man was a common way of describing a member of the human race. Thanks to this, it is perhaps unsurprising that many have taken Jesus' title as Son of Man To have been all about emphasizing his humanity as opposed to the title son of god which we will consider later in this series which they take to be all about emphasizing his divinity but it goes a lot deeper than that yes jesus was fully human having taken on weakness and vulnerability and this is key to him understanding the path we walk as well as being the only way that he could fulfill God's covenant plan. But Jesus used this title for himself repeatedly in addressing his followers and those he met during his ministry. Those people would have had no doubts about his humanity because they walked side by side with him, shared meals with him, saw him grow tired or in need of some time to himself, The phrase Son of Man cannot simply refer to Jesus' humanity, as it does in the case of Ezekiel. But before we move away from Ezekiel, we should just pause to notice that there is some interesting foreshadowing going on in the life of that prophet. Ezekiel was appointed as a prophet at the age of 30 and received his commissioning by a river. He witnessed abominations taking place in God's temple and went on to announce the destruction of Jerusalem. He sometimes spoke in parables. And in chapter 4, verse 4, we read that God said to Ezekiel, Then lie on your left side and put the sin of the people of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. That all sounds rather familiar, doesn't it? Like so many other Old Testament figures, Ezekiel foreshadows Jesus, not only because of the title of Son of Man, which they both share, but also because of key features of his ministry. By bearing the title Son of Man, both Ezekiel and Jesus were being shown to be fully human, but at the same time also being chosen for a special God-given ministry. But in all the instances of God addressing Ezekiel as Son of Man, it is without capital letters and without the addition of the definite article. Ezekiel may have been chosen for a special role, but he was still just an ordinary human being. And every time God calls him Son of Man, that emphasises the point. Jesus was fully human, having taken on frail flesh and being born in vulnerability. But every time he calls himself the Son of Man, with the definite article and capitalisation, he is saying much more about himself than the obvious fact for those around him to see that he was a human being. So why did Jesus choose that title for himself and what significance does it hold? Well, I think one of the reasons Jesus used it harks back again to Ezekiel. I just mentioned that Ezekiel spoke in parables, and this is obviously true of Jesus too. By doing this, the truth about who Jesus was and what his ministry was all about was only revealed to those whose eyes, ears, minds and hearts were opened by the Spirit so that they could understand the deep meaning in the stories Jesus told. In the same way, by using the title Son of Man, Jesus was again cloaking the truth about himself so that only those with their eyes open to the truth would fully understand the depth of what was signified by that title. Some would just hear Jesus calling himself a human being, but some would come to see what he was actually claiming about himself, as we will consider in a moment. If Jesus had gone around calling himself by the title Christ or Messiah, he would very likely have been arrested for blasphemy far earlier in his ministry. By choosing instead the deeply significant, but easily glossed over title of Son of Man, He both bought himself the time he needed to fulfil his earthly mission but also spoke deep truth to those who had the ears to hear it. I don't know if any of you have succumbed to watching the entirely ridiculous but highly addictive Saturday night TV show called The Masked Singer. I won't ask for a show of hands. The bizarre premise is that some of the most unexpected celebrities are dressed in over-the-top costumes and masks and then sing for an audience and panel of judges. As well as being judged on their performances, the main focus is to try to work out who is lurking behind the mask. Each week, more and more clues are given to their identities, which, along with trying to place their familiar-sounding voices, leads to much speculation as to the identities of those yet to be revealed. In a much deeper and far less cringy way, Jesus was doing something similar. By choosing to call himself the Son of Man, he was cloaking his identity, like the singers in their masks. Once unveiled, the singers often speak of the freedom they enjoyed through being able to perform from inside the elaborate costumes which concealed their identity. Jesus had the freedom to continue in his ministry because of the choice he made over how to address himself. For those in the crowd or amongst Jesus' followers, there would have been something very reminiscent about the title like the audience trying to place the singer's voices, which sound so familiar. And for those able to pick up on all the clues in Jesus' words and actions, with their eyes opened by the Holy Spirit, they would be able to grasp the true identity Jesus was claiming for himself, just like those managing to decipher the clues to discover the celebrities lurking behind the masks. As well as in Ezekiel, we do also find the phrase Son of Man in the book of Psalms. In Psalm 8, the phrase is again talking about human beings, wondering at the fact that the creator God cares for humanity and entrusts us with stewarding his creation. But in Psalm 80, the usage is different. Speaking of the Son of Man, God has raised up for himself, a man who is described as being at God's right hand, This is the first real inkling of the significance of Jesus' favourite title for himself. But it is in Daniel 7, the first reading which we heard this evening, that the full depth of meaning is revealed. So let's turn now to that passage. When we think of the book of Daniel, it's tempting to focus on the favourite Sunday school stories of Daniel in the lion's den, and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and gloss over the tricky chapters, and most especially chapter seven. I'm actually serializing the book of Daniel in assemblies this term at school, and not shying away from the tricky chapters, though making them accessible for reception children can be rather challenging. (laughs) But Jesus definitely wanted to give those with ears to hear the opportunity to understand that the title Son of Man was fundamentally about him being the same Son of Man described in Daniel 7. He doesn't merely use the title found in that chapter. He also, on a number of occasions, combines it with imagery found in Daniel's vision. Daniel writes, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. With that vision fresh in our minds, Hear these quotes from Jesus. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. At that time the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in the sky, with power and great glory. At that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And those are just three of several which demonstrate how Jesus alluded to Daniel 7 in relation to himself. I chose our second reading which was taken from the passage where the arrested Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin because it shows how Jesus explicitly referenced Daniel 7 in relation to himself when asked if he was the Messiah. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. The moment is right for Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, to be known by all. But he still does this by stating that he is the fulfillment of Daniel 7. As the high priest hears Jesus' choice of words, the penny drops about exactly what Jesus is claiming and has been claiming throughout his ministry by choosing the title of Son of Man. And so he now feels a charge of blasphemy can be brought. So what is all this fuss about Daniel chapter seven? Why is it such a big deal? We'd better roll our sleeves up and get to grips with it. And we can't just launch straight in. We need to see how it fits into the whole of God's covenant plan for his people, And that means starting at the very beginning. The story of the Bible begins with God appointing humans in his image to rule creation on his behalf and in partnership with him. But tragically, humankind forfeits this privilege, deceived by evil in the form of a serpent. They decide to seize authority for themselves and make their own definition of good and evil based on their own wisdom. The power of sin is described as a beast which wants to devour us, and Cain soon gives in to this animalistic urge and murders his brother. So begins the slippery slope for humanity, from the heights of their calling to the depths of their sinfulness. Rather than ruling over the animals, they have now become like animals, fighting and killing for survival and supremacy. But there is still hope. In Genesis 3 verse 15, God promises that one day a human would come, the son of a woman, who would crush the serpent's head while also himself being struck by the serpent. This theme of promise and hope continues throughout the Old Testament As God raises up, one after another, unlikely deliverers to intervene for his people, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Deborah, Samuel, David and others, each one is both heroic and flawed. At times they fulfil their calling as God's representative, but at other times they give in to the sinful beast within every instance reiterates the need to keep waiting for the promised human who will finally fulfill this calling but it is in the book of daniel that all this imagery is taken to a whole new level in chapter 4 which coincidentally was the part of the story i was telling in assembly last week king nebuchadnezzar of babylon refuses to acknowledge god's authority and is reduced to living amongst the animals as a wild beast. It's a complete reversal of the role given to humanity in Genesis 1, as a human ruler is brought low to the level of a beast of the field. And then we come to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has a dream about wild and terrible beasts, which symbolise the mighty and corrupt empires which ravage God's good world. But then, Daniel sees a human figure called the Son of Man, who God exalts above the beasts to rule alongside him. This Son of Man is worshipped by peoples of every nation as he rules with authority over an everlasting kingdom. This vision is like a summary of the entire Bible story up to this point, God's desire is that humanity be unified with him in ruling creation as his wise, image-bearing stewards. But humankind has rather given in to the ways of the beasts. So all that can be hoped is that a human will come who can fulfil the calling all others have failed in and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. If that understanding of what Daniel 7 is all about doesn't open our eyes to how it so fundamentally points to Jesus' life and mission, then I don't know what will. Daniel chapter 7 is key to understanding what Jesus is all about, and it makes perfect sense of why Jesus chose the Son of Man as his preferred title. I found this quote from the Bible Project very helpful. Jesus is the divine human partner that we all need to overcome the animal inside our nature and raise humanity back to the glorious destiny that God created us to experience. Jesus' death was God's condemnation of our animal violence, and the resurrection was his loving victory over the powers of death and evil. In and through Jesus, God has become what we are, so that we can become what he is and share in his divine life and love this is the story of the son of man and it's the story of all of us as well we started by considering the significance of titles and surely there can be very few if any titles more significant and meaning-bearing than son of man But what is the challenge to us? We need to not shy away from the trickier parts of the Bible story. Jesus was able to call himself the Son of Man and still have the time to fulfil his earthly ministry because the deep truths of how passages like Daniel 7 were pointing precisely to him were hidden from people's minds. We should be ready to wrestle with the seemingly difficult parts of the Bible story rather than ignoring or rejecting them, asking God to open our eyes to how it all fits together and reaches fulfilment in Jesus. We need to have a big enough picture of the way in which Jesus uniquely fulfils the covenant and every prophecy and foreshadowing which signposts his mission and ministry. Let's never tire of finding new ways to be amazed and astounded at the way in which every stage of the Bible story points to Jesus as the only one who could live up to God's calling and crush the serpent by his costly sacrifice, bringing us redemption and reconciliation. And we need to be willing to live up to our calling to follow in Jesus's footsteps. As Jesus' body here on earth now, it is the Church's role to bring more of God's light and love to our desperate world. We are still called to be wise stewards of creation and to strive after peace and justice. Jesus was the only one who could fulfil the calling perfectly, but that doesn't let us off the hook. When we hear Jesus explaining that the Son of Man came to serve rather than be served, and to seek the lost, we need to ask for God's help in developing the same attitude ourselves. In Matthew 16, we read of this exchange. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Amen.